I want to invite you this morning to open your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, as we pick up where we left off last Sunday, I want to read the whole passage to you this morning and for you. John chapter 19, verses 17 through 30. And God's inspired and inerrant word reads, They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on the other side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Then it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. And so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the Scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing, near, or standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When, Je when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father, we would ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. Father, as we come to a very solemn text, as we come to a text that uh, is both very solemn, of course, but we know the end result. Father, we know how the story ends, and in that we give you thanks. And Father, now I would pray and I would ask you to uh, take my mind under your control. Father, would you bring clarity to it? And I pray, Lord, as we study your word, that your spirit would illuminate this text so that we can understand it and we can apply it to our life. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Crucified King, Part 2. John writes this gospel as an eyewitness to the events unfolding before us. In fact, John is the only one of the twelve who was present as Jesus hung upon the cross. One-third of the Gospel of John is focused upon this final week of the life of Jesus. There is no birth narrative in the Gospel of John. John does not record the wilderness temptations of Jesus. There are no parables. There is no Sermon on the Mount. John's sole focus, it would seem, is on the cross of Christ. 
although written 40 to 50 years after these events, as an eyewitness, the memory of them is burned into his mind and etched upon his heart. And as I said last week in part one, verse 16, the sentence has been handed down. Jesus stands condemned. The sentence is death by crucifixion. And as I closed last week's sermon, I said that you are either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. Meaning you are either in Christ and under no condemnation, or you are outside of Christ and still under condemnation. There's only two places, two positions for humanity in their relationship with Christ. In Christ or outside of Christ. Last week, the point one that I had was the condemned king. And I have one more thought that I want to add to that before we we carry on this morning. And that one point is this. It is in verse 19. It's the charge against Jesus. If you see in verse 19, John says that it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Matthew puts it like this. And Matthew says, above his head, on the cross there, above Jesus' head, they put the charge against him, which read, this was the charge that they leveled against Jesus, was that he said he is the King of the Jews. John records that not just any, but he's actually from Nazareth. And I want to want to look at that word, that city, that town, just briefly this morning to make my point. If you recall all the way back to John chapter 1, where Nathaniel was introduced or was about to be introduced to Jesus, Nathaniel's response was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Nathaniel, he was a Galilean. He was from Cana. Nazareth, it was an unimportant place. It was a place that evidently you didn't want to be from. And this type of prejudice is not unique to Nathaniel or to the biblical times, but it is also still with us today. There are some places regarded as unfavorable. And Jesus came from just such a place. And Jesus' response to Nathanael when he seen Nathanael, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. I love that response of Jesus. I mean, a bit of sarcasm there possibly. I love that response that Jesus gave here to Nazareth. But nonetheless, this was the charge. This is who is hanging upon that cross. This man, this God, this figure, this Savior, this Christ, this Messiah. Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Now, Pilate did not write that title on the cross because he necessarily cared. I see it as Pilate giving one last dig to the Jewish leaders. Your king comes from Nazareth. You yourself do not hold in high esteem. I find that interesting. an interesting point. And then in verse 20, it continues and it says that therefore many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin. 
And this is my point that I want to make for you this morning, that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. It should not be lost upon us, these three languages. It should not be lost upon us that Jerusalem could, in essence, if you look at your map in your Bible and you kind of look at the location of Jerusalem and kind of the towns and the cities and the travels around Jerusalem, Jerusalem could be called very much as a, as a crossroad, a place where it had many people, different nationalities, different ethnicities would come and through this city and they would all read this inscription and Pilate, without even knowing it, <laughs> said, Jesus is the Savior of the world. It's what we're told in John chapter 3, verse 16, is it not? For God so loved, what? The world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. But let us not stop at verse 16. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. Jesus here in His dying was also declaring that He is the Savior of the whole world. It also says in verse 20 that the place, it says in verse 20 that the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Meaning outside of the city. And as we looked at last week, and I spent quite a bit of time on 17 and 18, so I'm not going to re-preach last Sunday's sermon, um, but we've seen that Jesus was taken outside the city gates. And I had referenced, and I want to reference it again this morning, Hebrews chapter 12. I mean, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the city gate, Why? So, let us go to Him outside the gate, bearing His reproach. Now, the author, the writer, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit here, is is calling us to also go outside the gate. And I want to remind you this morning, and I want to remind myself this morning, that each and every one of us is called to carry our own cross. Each and every one of us has been given a cross to carry. And I think that under the general heading of our crosses, if you will, is the cross of self-denial. I think that is a cross that each and every one of us carries. Now, how that is fleshed out, what that looks like, how that is manifested in each and every one of our lives may be a bit different, and I would suggest it probably is quite a bit different. But the root of our cross, if you will, I believe, is this idea of self-denial. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? Deny himself pick up His cross, and follow Me. There's three instructions that are given there. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. The way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. I am convinced that the baggage that keeps us from going through that narrow gate, that going through that narrow path is the baggage of the refusal of self-denial. 
the, battle, the, the, the baggage that we carry, the cross that we welcome upon ourselves is, that, is one of autonomy, right? It's one of I, my, my wishes, my wants, my desires, right? This is the cross that I believe that we must lay down. Think about who first carried that cross. Jesus. Jesus. There was a lot of self-denying there as we look at the life of Jesus. And as I already referenced in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus gives us three instructions if we want to follow him, be his disciple. We must what? Pick up our, we must deny ourselves. First and foremost, we must deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. All three must be present. I would offer to you that I believe many Christians, especially in the Western church, that's where we are, that's what I, where I'm standing is that this idea that we accept the cross without acknowledging or realizing what it means to accept the cross. We look to the cross of Christ and we think that Jesus died for my sins, therefore I can go on and be whatever, fill in the blank. I can live life how I want to live it. Nothing could be more unbiblical, non-biblical than that. Jesus says we must deny ourselves if we are going to be His disciple. Well, let's go on so I can certainly get through the rest of these points here this morning. And that is the second one. So first there was the condemning, condemned king, the condemning king. And then second here is the confirming king. Jesus is the confirming king in verses 23 to 25a. We see that. And I'm not going to uh, spend a lot of time on these right here because much has been made regarding the four parts of the clothing of Jesus. Much has been made for that. And many people, as I enjoyed, or I'm not saying if I enjoyed, but I felt obligated to read many of the commentators on this as they exegeted this text and, and, and the analogies that they drew to these four parts. And also to this one piece of tunic, the, his, his, would have been his, probably undergarment, the one that went to get next to the skin, was all woven together, no seams. None that. Hey, listen, as a cyclist, I can, I, I can appreciate no seams in the kit. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, here is, 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 they make much of that. And I'm not going to do that this morning because the point that I want to make of this here, because we don't necessarily know, but what I want to say and, and, and highlight and offer to you is that, that John sees this as a fulfillment of Scripture. Those who knew the Scripture would have recognized this from Psalm chapter 22, verse 18, that, they, that the soldiers did exactly this. And many of your commentaries, those who, who maybe would be... A, bit outside of the, the normal realm of Orthodox Christianity, if you will. Many of them would say, yeah, but that's not unique. That isn't totally Jesus being spoken of there in Psalm 22. You know, because that was the normal procedure for all the soldiers. And certainly, I get that and I understand that, that that argument can be made. So if you read such an argument, certainly that is. But John sees it here as the fulfillment of this particular text. And John sees this event and this action as just another confirming event, as proof of Jesus being the Messiah as Jesus being the king. That's the confirming king. Next, I want you to notice the caring king. In verses 25b through verse 27, 
we see the, the caring king. And I want you to notice how this starts out. You, you really need to see this in your own Bibles. And right here in John chapter 19, verse 25, the second half of 25, but, here, here comes this word, but, but, G, but standing by the cross. Here are some people of Jesus, and we're told who they are. We're standing by the cross of Christ. And I want to remind you, again, without getting graphic, without getting much detail there, of the situation Jesus found himself in. Here he is, beaten and bruised and bloodied and, and, and probably very much uh, the humanity of Jesus coming through in and out of consciousness. Who knows what might have been the case. And yet there is Jesus with the wherewithal to see those around the cross and to care for them, to look upon them and to acknowledge those who are there. Certainly anyone could be forgiven in the state that Jesus found himself in if he wouldn't have thought, if he wouldn't have noticed, not just his mother, but also others standing by the cross. <clears throat> I, I, I want to offer you this this morning as we think about sometimes our own situations in life. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, and as I think about Dickie, and as we think about Dickie this morning and pray for Dick this morning, it's a verse that I hear Dick quote often. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And not to preach about Dickie too much here this morning, but the night before his surgery, he quoted this exact verse to me, to himself, as he was preparing for this surgery. And that's exactly the life of Dickie. That's exactly the life that it should be of ours, that we can cast all our anxieties upon Jesus. Here we see Jesus himself living this out. In Psalm chapter 55, verse 22, it says this. And Peter probably knew this, where this came from. Cast your burden upon Yahweh, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Literally, I, they, should, they, should put, uh, they should actually put that uh, uh, totter there instead of shaken because it's literally that. In fact, in Psalm chapter 66, verse 9, same word there is translated here as shaken is here translated as slip. And I, and I really like what it says. It's the point I want to make. And that is that Yahweh keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. And as we think about the care of Jesus hanging upon the cross, looking at his mother, looking at those around him, seeing the disciple whom he loved, our, our gospel writer John standing there and caring for them, Jesus will not allow our feet to slip. Jesus will not allow our faith to slip away from us. Jesus is the caring king who has made every possible provision so that we do not totter, so that we do not slip, so that we do have some place to turn as we carry our own cross, if you will. Was the caring king, and, and finally I will end with this, and that is the consummated king. The consummated king, verses 28 through verse 30. Verse 28, after this, uh, now, after this is what? It's, it's what came right before it. 
It's what came right before. What came right before is what I just, what we just talked about, right? And that Jesus making provisions for his mother. And that Jesus looking at John and saying, John, she is now, my mother is now your mother. Mother, John is now your son. This is the event after this, and then Jesus continues. But also the after this is everything. And I would offer to you that his whole 33 years of life is now being thought of and spoken of here in these two little words, after this. Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill Scripture, said, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. John doesn't record it for us here. But Matthew and Mark, they cite Psalm 22 here also, when they say that it would be at this point where putting the two texts together, this would have been spoken, where Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about those words in the context of what just occurred. As Jesus just took care of his mother, as Jesus just took care of John, he now cries this out. What do we do with that saying of Jesus? What does it mean when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, many words have been spoken. Much ink has been spilled on trying to explain that. But there are some things we cannot totally explain. Many want to point back, and I would agree with this for, for my two cents worth, that it's from Habakkuk 1.13, where he writes that your eyes, the eyes of Yahweh, are too pure to look at evil, and you cannot look at wickedness. And as we think about the purpose Jesus served to be upon the cross, as He took on the sins of the world, it was the sins of the world that Yahweh, that God, was now turning His his eyes from. And Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished, it says, to fulfill Scripture. In In our text, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill Scripture, said, I, I am thirsty. In John, in John chapter 17, verse 4, as Jesus prayed to the Father, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Then in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of the Father, the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish this work. Jesus has now done and completed this work, this work on the cross, this work of his life, this work of offering salvation to the world, when he cried out, it is finished. It's only John who records these words, it is finished. Matthew, Mark, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke, into your hands I commit my spirit. John, it is finished. I'm going to focus our whole message next Sunday. That'll be the title of the message. It is finished. And it'll be on this verse, John chapter 19, verse 30. But, I, but, I, but, but for today, I want you to remind you, and I want you again to see John's thesis statement, as I call it. And that is in John chapter 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs 
Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may know, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John, throughout his whole gospel, makes a beeline, makes a straight line, is totally focused upon the cross. This is John's whole focus. This is what he wants to focus on, but that's going to be for next week. The work, the cross, cannot be undone. Jesus says, it is finished. That's for next week as we come to the Lord's table. What does it mean for you that Jesus declares, it is finished? It is finished. The work of the cross cannot be undone. Jesus says, it is finished. And maybe as a a little teaser to get you thinking for next week, I would offer to you, once finished, always finished. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the work of the cross, for your life leading up to the cross, for all of it, Lord. None of it can be undone. None of it can be taken away. And Father, as we think about what it means for you to be the crucified King, as we think about your final words upon the cross, it is finished. Father, I pray that as we meditate on those words, as we think about the work that you have done, that you have taken our condemnation, that you have confirmed your Messiahship, your Lordship, and you have shown your caringness even in the most distraught types of situation, and finally you have consummated it with the words, it is finished. I pray, Lord, that you would have your your way among us as we think about this today, but as we look forward to next week, and as we celebrate what you have given us to celebrate, and that is communion, that is the Lord's table. And so, Father, I pray uh, that you would um, take these words, take this text, and would it be applicable in our life, Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.